This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. At least five federal agencies are working with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency tonight to determine if hackers got into their networks through Pulse Connect Secure Appliances. CISA Deputy Executive Assistant Director Matt Hartman tells Breaking Defense his agency will offer incident response support based on what they find. CISA first alerted agencies about the Pulse Connect secure vulnerability April 20th. The Defense Department Inspector General's Office has a list of 15 allegations of unethical behavior the former Chief Financial Officer of the Defense Innovation Unit has lodged against Director Mike Brown. Bob Ingegnery alleges the nominee to become acquisition head of the Pentagon hired friends and used his position to make larger payments to contractors. FedScoop reports the IG office hasn't said yet if it will investigate the allegations. The end of the virtual private network is coming to agencies thanks to the third version of the trusted Internet connection. Tick program manager Sean Connolly says agencies are, quote, scaling away from VPNs in Tick's third iteration. FedScoop reports the zero trust movement is driving the switch to new identity management solutions. A new executive order from President Biden will set a minimum wage for government contracts at $15 an hour. Eric Crucius is a partner in Holland and Knight looking at the new proposal. Eric, welcome. It's good to have you on the program. What do we know about this timeline for implementation and so on? Well, it's interesting. It's not supposed to be implemented until early next year. Um, the regulations are due to be written in November of this year and finalized then. But the uh, executive order has something interesting in it where it encourages agencies to the extent permitted by law to raise the minimum wage and adopt this policy prior to that time. So contractors should be on the lookout to see if, if maybe agencies will kind of throw this executive order into their contracts. How many contractors are there? How many employees of contractors are there, do we even know, that will move up from the lower number to the higher number? So the... the the government claims that there's it's in the hundreds of thousands. I'm not so sure. Uh, we'll have to see. But I mean, you know, the, the Department of Labor issues a wage determination for each locality. Well, actually, issues two technically for each locality uh, on the normal wage determinations. And a lot of those wages have positions that are below $15 an hour, especially when you get outside of the large metropolitan areas. So all those folks will be impacted by this in a positive way for them where their wages will see an increase from whatever they're making up to $15 per hour. But there's not really, I don't think there's really kind of solid evidence as far as how many employees or how many contractors will be impacted. It'll be quite a few. Uh, certainly on the employee side, the government claims it's in the hundreds of thousands. Do we have any sense yet of how the uh, contractors themselves might react? Are they gonna be able to, for contracts that are already in place, are they gonna be able to bill the government back? Or are they gonna have to eat this? So with the former, um, with President Obama's executive order that was very similar, that raised it to 10, 10 an hour and then adjusted upwards uh, based on the consumer price index, um, contractors were able to get a price adjustment that was built into the regulation after it was written. Not, not, not adding to profits or anything like that. So the profits margins went down because the, the, you know, the, the, the uh, hourly wage went up. But um, 
you know, the interesting thing is if this is kind of inserted into contracts early, the executive order doesn't allow for any kind of compensation to the contractors for the additional wages. Um, so it remains to be seen as far as what the regulation will look like. I imagine it'll mirror the old one, which allowed for compensation to contractors. But then that interim period where, you know, maybe agencies are going to insert this early, it'd be kind of interesting to see what kind of tact agencies will take if contractors will be able to get that difference. Where will this hit the most? Do we have a sense of that yet? What types of businesses, what types of organizations across the contracting, the industrial base um, will be impacted the most by this, Eric? So I would probably think the services industry, this executive order covers uh, a number of different types of contracts. Most prevalent are contracts covered by the Service Contract Act and the Davis-Bacon Act, uh, construction and services. Um, and I think, you know, there's a ton of folks who are working in call centers who are doing maintenance and cleaning and things like that who are probably making less than $15 an hour. So I think those contracts and those employees will probably be mostly impacted by this. Um, where, What overall should companies be doing to prepare for this besides just examining where uh, their uh, pay bases are right now? Contractors should really be, you know, under the Service Contract Act and Davis-Bacon Act, they have to track how much they're paying employees and how often they're doing it and for how many hours they're being compensated for. But contractors should also kind of save the records to show the difference in wages that the employees will be getting because there will be, there'll probably be an opportunity to kind of, to get a price adjustment for that difference. So those records need to be saved and contractors have to be proactive in working with the agency to get that price adjustment because time, too much time may pass and they may not have the ability to do so. I want to shift gears in the time that we have left and ask you about the JEDI contract. Uh, the court uh, where that case resides now is saying that it will continue. The Defense Department had asked for uh, that case to be uh, stopped. What's your take on what that means for the future of this contract, Eric? You know, uh, oftentimes when contracts run into this much trouble uh, through the court system or th at GAO, you know, the, the agency gives up and says, all right, let's just start this again and start fresh. But it's been quite amazing to see the resilience that DOD has had in kind of sticking with this procurement through thick and thin. They obviously believe in it quite a bit. And I don't know that this will impact it that much because DOD seems bent on fighting it, fighting for it uh, along the way. But, um, you know, this is this is one of those classic knockout drop drop down battles between contractor and uh, and the federal government. And I'm no I'm no clued in as far as how this is going to turn out as I was uh, two years ago. It's 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 been quite a lot of twists and turns. Um, and I think if anybody knows what's going to happen there, they're kind of fooling us and uh, they have a bridge to sell us in Brooklyn. Uh, that's what's striking to me about this whole uh, case, Eric, is that we are in the same spot we were in in 2017, 2018. We don't seem to be any further along. There are, is a story in Washington Business Journal this weekend. Carton Cordell uh, wrote a story with three potential outcomes. One of them is a deal with Amazon in order to give them a piece of the business to get them to stop doing this so they can move forward. How often does, do those kinds of deals happen in cases like this? They do happen sometimes. Um, I had a protest resolved that way about three or four months ago, so it does happen. Um, I think that's a, an equitable way out of this. Um, it does kind of, it's kind of contra to what DOD wanted to do with Jedi, where they wanted one provider for this whole platform. But I think that's that could be a fair, fair adjudication of this and allows the government to move on. This thing has been held up for years now. The government needs the solution. And I'm not blaming any company for this because it's nobody's fault. Um, but they do need to move on and kind of figure a way out of this. And that's, that's, a, that's a good possible way out. Eric Crucius, thanks very much. Great to see you as always.
Thank you. Up next, tinkering under the hood at the Thrift Savings Plan. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the TSP's goal to make changes you'll never see. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. $1.8 million thrift savings plan participants now use the Roth option. Assets are up 64% since the start of the program. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, thanks for coming on the program. I'm old enough to remember when the Roth wasn't a thing yet. Um, have, you, have you tried to drive participation into the Roth program by doing outreach? Have you done outreach just to say this is something that you can choose and people are doing it themselves? What's driving this level of participation, do you think? Well, when we created the Roth option back in 2012, it was with the military in mind because if you're young and you put your money into the Roth TSP and you let it grow, that is gonna be quite a tax advantaged account when you retire. And so, of course, in 2012, we didn't know that BRS was coming, um, but now that it's here, that's really what has driven, um, driven the increase in the Roth participation. We have about 41% more accounts and about 60% more money just from when BRS went live in January of 2018. So this is hockey stick growth. This isn't linear or exponential growth. This is just a big swing up all of a sudden. And it's entirely logical and exactly what Roth was designed to do, right? You put your money in after tax, that money will grow. You won't pay um, taxes on the money that you've contributed. You will have to pay taxes on the earnings, but it is still an incredible advantage um, that you have and will continue with you through your career. Um, looking at some of the, the material from this month's board meeting, I detected in one of the slides a potential freakout deterrence. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you're changing the name of the record keeping services acquisition to Converge. Explain what's behind that and then I'll tell you what I saw. Okay, well, the record keeping the record keeping services acquisition has been a multi year um, effort and we awarded that contract back in November. And as we've discussed before, we're now in the, the transition phase, it'll go live in the summer of 2022. And as the name was, it was acquisition. And so we have changed the name of that program, the transition program to converge. All right, so uh, what this slide says is Converge is a refreshed identity for the program for internal uh, thrift savings plan and partner agency use and communications only, part of our larger change management strategy. Here's what I think was the freakout mitigation. Converge is not replacing our existing um, thrift board or TSP branding. Like, was there a concern that people thought there were going to be some, big, some kind of big changes coming? Well, internally, people wanted to know what exactly the branding effort was, because obviously we're fairly proud of our branding for the TSP and people's recognition of the TSP. And so there was concern that Converge was sort of going to um, grow and expand. 
And that bullet that you refer to was a clear signal that that's not what's going to happen. Another item uh, undertaken at the board meeting is multi-asset manager, uh, the multi-asset manager project. What is that and where are you on the timeline of that? Well, the, our board members um, wanted us to add an additional fund manager to mitigate a very small risk of black swan event. Um, and so that if something happened to our current fund manager, which is unlikely, but if it happened, we would still be able to continue trading. Our participants would continue to be able to move and invest their money. Um, and so we, in April, mid-April, April 16th, we did the first transfer of funds to the new fund manager, State Street, and that was 10% of the C fund, which is still a fairly hefty chunk of change. And that went exceedingly well and so we will now move to the um, S fund, which is more complicated, and then to the F fund, which is even more complicated. What philosophically, either about this change in particular or changes like this in general, what generates uh, an interest among folks inside the thrift savings plan to say this is something we need to take into consideration or this is a change that we need to make? Are there particular events in cases like this or... Uh, is it something where you're continuing, as you've said many times, to parallel what similar plans are doing in the private sector? Or what, what drives these, these kinds of changes, Kim? There's any number of things. There could be an event that causes us or our board members to think we should explore something. But our board members have ex uh, extensive experience in um, retirement and defined contributions. And so in this case, it was their knowledge, their background, and their understanding that the thrift plan was gonna to continue to grow in size, that they thought that it would be a prudent thing, which is exactly what they're supposed to do, to add a separate new fund manager. We have about 30 seconds left, Kim. Any sense that this will change the fee structure at all, that by having a little, a smaller piece in, the, in each fund that it will impact the fee structure at all? The second fund manager should have a minimal, if any, impact on the investment expenses. We don't expect it to be significant at all. Kim Weaver, thanks very much as always. Thank you. Up next, a huge cash infusion for the Internal Revenue Service. Straight ahead on Government Matters, triaging the money flow if Congress says yes. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. President Biden proposes giving the Internal Revenue Service $80 billion more to spend on enforcement on high earners and big corporations. The plan would give the IRS more authority for its audits over the next 10 years, too. Danny Werfel's managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group. He's former acting commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Danny, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. We talked a little bit before we went on the air. I thought this was a typo when I first saw it. I thought it was $80 million at first. It's not. What what do you make of this? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I mean, the IRS usually operates annually at about a $12 billion budget. Um, they've been on a resource decline 
um, that started, you know, back in 2013 when I was there, um, and um, and now it's it's playing catch up and making sure that uh, that they're bringing uh, the right enforcement approach. Uh, so so it's a lot of money, but the thing about enforcement dollars at the IRS is they have a return on investment for taxpayers. They um, you, you spend the money and you bring more money into the treasury coffers. So it's typically a good investment. I think the question that's on people's minds is, can the IRS absorb that type of, of budget? Now it's over five years. Um, and one thing I learned about the IRS when I was there is they're, they're resourceful, they're creative, and, and I have confidence that they would uh, would ramp up uh, effectively here. Even if you spread it, though, over five years, that's a lot of money for a $12 billion organization. I'm going to put you back in that commissioner's chair with all due respect to Commissioner Reddick, who I'm sure uh, has a strategy to implement this money. Where would you stick it first? Well, I mean, I think there's, you know, I, I wouldn't want to stick it all in one place, right? right. You've got to, got to hire some more people. You've got to invest in technology, uh, potentially bring in some expertise uh, to raise the IRS's game in data analytics and forensics. You know, staying ahead of tax cheats in today's environment is difficult. I mean, the, the world gets a lot more sophisticated in terms of uh, how they, uh, you know, uh, steal identities or use big data to uh, to create fraud schemes, and uh, it's a battle. It's a battle royale, if you will, and um, and the IRS, to use an old term from uh, from the uh, the Untouchables days, I mean, they they want to bring a gun to a gunfight, um, and so you know, I, I think it's an exciting opportunity. Um, if you're if you're like me and really want to make sure that people and organizations meet their obligations under the tax code, I mean, too many years have gone by where the IRS has been underinvested. Um, it's exciting to uh, to think about the IRS coming uh, coming full on with a uh, with an approach to make sure people are paying what what's owed. One of the questions that you and I always discuss is talent in in any given situation, management situation in government, Danny. Is the, does the talent exist to come into the IRS to do enforcements, to do audits as President Biden wants them to, who's willing to work for the government, who's willing to work for the IRS? Same kind of discussion I imagine that we have at the Securities and Exchange Commission, CFPB and these other organizations, where the person bringing the gun to the gunfight is sitting across the table from somebody who's making a lot more money than he or she is. Well, let me switch from a, to a sports analogy on that one and say, look, at, at, the, at the height of their career at the IRS, I mean, they were in top athletic shape, have had the talent, but that talent doesn't go away. They just need to redevelop those muscles, maybe bring in some new position players. Um, but at its core, the IRS is an immensely talented organization, in particular around running the nation's tax system. And I think, just think they have to kind of uh, reawaken in some of that, uh, that muscle and get that muscle memory going. Uh, there's a foundation of knowledge and experience there that gives me confidence that with an infusion of new resources, um, they're gonna be able to do uh, a lot of good things in terms of enforcement. You know, and with this announcement, they need to start planning right now exactly how they're going to sequence their investments, rebuild that muscle, 
uh, where they're going to go uh, for the for the highest impact uh, in terms of, of of making sure that people and organizations are paying what that what's owed. Um, I think the talent is there, but certainly uh, some work is is done to supplement that and get those uh, those muscles going again. Is there a risk, especially in the technology area, Danny, that with this kind of cash infusion, an organization can move too quickly, can try to go too fast? Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's it's it's there's a bullseye here that you're going to try to hit. I mean, you could um, you could waste money on on technologies that you aren't ready to deploy. Um, you can waste money on technologies that take too long to deploy. And then, you know, in this world, you know, if you don't move quickly enough, you know, the, the tax cheats out there will have advanced a new scheme on you. Um, so it's about keeping pace. It's about being agile um, and developing solutions. But once those solutions are developed, you can't rest. You gotta, you gotta keep moving. And, you know, I don't ever expect perfection. Um, you know, everyone makes mistakes. The IRS certainly will make mistakes. Hopefully they'll fail fast with those mistakes. But in today's world, um, they have to be more agile than they've ever been before. Um, and they can't do it on a shoestring budget. And so this is uh, President Biden and the administration saying, we're going to get serious. You know, there's, it's a very interesting strategy, Francis, because, you know, you could spend time arguing about, you know, tax increases and changing the regulations to eliminate loopholes and, and people will get bogged down in, in the politics and the policies of that. What this uh, announcement is saying is like, let's enforce the laws that are already on the books. Let's enforce the regulations that are already on the books. And, um, and it's hard to argue that if it's on the books already, um, it should be enforced uh, to the maximum extent practical. And so, you know, it's a good place to be in terms of a, a political debate because the laws and regulations are already in place. It's just about getting the job done. Danny Werfel, thanks very much as always. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Francis. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it online at govmatters.tv and you get a preview of every show. When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That is the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology 
um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.